0: Hello everyone, it's February 13th, 2024, so Dream Chaser seems to be well on its way to hopping on the next Vulcan for a launch to the ISS. Well, there's always a chance that the schedule slips, but it's looking like it'll be sooner than later, so let's talk about what CRS with Dream Chaser looks like, and what to expect, and liftoff! Hey, we've got the tower, welcome to episode 446 of the Wooden Mechanics Podcast, I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis.
1: So David, i got a question for you. What is the name of Venus's moon?
0: I'm going to (laughs) guess... <laughs> uh, is it Zuzva since, since I see it written in the document?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's this really beautiful solar system poster, um, that was drawn up by uh, a European artist named Alex Foster. And, uh, we'll have a, a link to it in the show notes, but also I just dropped it into Discord. Yeah. Chris in the chat says, um, OMG, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's a really lovely poster. Um, it's got, all of the planets and their moons. Um, I don't think Pluto is on here, so it's, it's just the planets and just their moons. And it's really beautifully illustrated, um, with shooting stars and some spacecraft kind of scattered around and, you know, the orbits are not to scale or anything, but it's just like a list of all the names of all the planets and their, and their moons. And, uh, David, do you, do you see Venus over there on the left? Yep. Yeah. So it's it's got a moon labeled Zuzve. Z-O-O-Z-V-E. And so um, one of the hosts of the podcast Radiolab uh, has this poster in his uh, child's room. And one night after putting the kid to bed, he happened to look at the poster on the way out and noticed Zuzve. And like notably, uh, Venus doesn't have a moon, neither does Mercury. They're the only two planets to not have moons. And the question is, where the heck did this moon come from? Because the rest of the chart is accurate. Um, <laughs> so Alex Foster, the artist, uh, had no idea where this came from. He just said, you know what? I'm not a space guy. Um, I, went and did a bunch of research and like listed out all the moons and all the planets and the orders. And I just like drew it up and put all the labels in for my notes. And so radio lab also called, um, I think a, a PAO officer over at uh, NASA and she had no idea what was going on. And then after they talked to that PAO officer, like the next day, <laughs> She called them back and said, Hey, actually, no, I figured it out. So basically, what happened is uh, Venus has got a pseudo moon, right? So it's an asteroid in a resonant orbit. And so, if you're looking at things from Venus's perspective, it looks like it's kind of orbiting Venus, uh, cause it, you know, goes around the sun with Venus, but it kind of dips in and out uh venus's orbit every you know every orbit it goes in and out and it speeds up and slows down and so yeah, it kind of maybe orbits Venus or at least it draws circles around Venus or at least it draws you know squished jelly beans around venus
2: they're i think they're officially called quasi satellites
1: oh qu- you're right qu- yeah a quasi moon not a not a yeah. pseudo-moon. and so that asteroid is called two thousand two v e sixty eight and what it seems like happened is the artist in their notes, uh, while they were putting together their notes, didn't realize that, you know, a quasi satellite is not actually a moon. And they didn't realize that 2002 VE 68 is like a provisional designation that tells you what year it was discovered and, and what order it was discovered in. And dropped the 68 and just wrote down 2002 VE. And the artist says that his handwriting is in all caps. And so those twos wound up looking like Zs and the zeros wound up looking like Os. (laughs) (laughs) And so he wound up writing down Zuzve. But here's like, all of that would be just like, Oh, this is, you know, this weird thing that you can buy on the internet that happens to be wrong in an entertaining way. What makes this really interesting is IAU this week, decided to upgrade this asteroid to a body that deserves an actual name. And so now this body is called 524522 Zuzve. Like, they actually named the darn thing Zuzve. And that is, isn't that amazing?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like that.
1: It just makes me so happy that we can have a little bit of joy in astronomy sometimes
0: and not name it after another <laughs> greek god or something
1: i mean it's it's not a moon so i don't think it would get a greek god name but it, you know they could name it after the discoverer or whatever. Well, whatever
0: maybe like mercury's uh shoes or something <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> right <laughs>
1: yeah uh air zeus's <laughs>
0: So in the news, uh, dream chaser readies for its first flight. Specifically, uh, it just underwent a shake test, a, uh, or a vibration test, I guess is maybe what it's more, you know, supposed to be called. Yeah. And then next it's on to, what is it? The thermal vacuum chamber?
1: Yeah. I think, I think it might actually be in the thermal vacuum chamber already.
0: So you're going to have to explain this first bullet point that I'm looking at, not tuna city.
1: <laughs> I just read because it's name is DC 101 tenacity. Uh, DC 101 is the serial number. And I, I read Tenacity as Tuna City and I was like, that's a weird thing to name a
0: spacecraft.
1: What are they doing?
0: <laughs> that's a, that's another great, uh, name for something in space. Mm. Yeah. Zeus and Tuna City. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Dream Chaser is going to launch no earlier than the second quarter this year. Um, we'll, we'll see when it actually launches. Um, this vehicle is called Tenacity. Uh, it will be the vehicle flying on the first four of the seven CRS-2 contracted flights. The next one is gonna fly first on flight five, and my assumption is that it'll fly on the, the next three, uh, flights, but I don't think they've said, uh, yet if that's gonna be the case. Um, the next vehicle is called Reverence. And each of these vehicles are designed for a 15-mission lifespan. They are really hoping, Sierra Nevada is really hoping that they're going to fly for more than 15 missions. But I think the hope is that they're going to get a place on the CRS-3 uh, contract. Hopefully that there will be a CRS-3 contract. And uh, they'll get to refly these vehicles uh, to ISS uh, long into uh, their 15-mission lifespan and beyond. Uh, so right, Tenacity is going to be launching on a Vulcan rocket. I I guess this is going to be the second Vulcan rocket, unless something else overtakes it. Let's see. Yeah,
2: Wikipedia does say that it would be. It is slated to be next, but there's also a, a an NSSL mission that would be a couple of months later. So if if Tenacity isn't tenacious enough and slips.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, probably on the, on the second flight of Vulcan. So the dream chaser is, you know, like a, a really beautiful vehicle. I wish that we had more to really talk about, but, uh, found some interesting stats on a uh, NASA space flight. It uses, uh, 10 inch square tiles, like 10 inches on a side. Uh, shuttle's tiles were about six inches on a side. So these are much larger tiles. Uh, and of course, uh, dream chaser is, it's got like a quarter of the surface area that shuttle does. So just drastically fewer tiles. I think it's on the order of like 2000.
0: Why fewer and larger tiles, which I mean, does seem like the easier thing to do.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it kind of is the easier thing to do if you can manufacture tiles that large. So it's less surface area, right? So that could still be more tiles if they were, you know, little tiny subway tile sized tiles, but less surface area. doesn't really have a why (laughs) it's kind of obvious, but why are they bigger? Um, yeah, so it's mostly to reduce, uh, like any sort of shedding events, the, the, creases in between the tiles is kind of the danger zone. Also, the larger you make the tile, the more grabbing force you can potentially have. Um, and they, they really don't want to drop any of these tiles off of the vehicle and that's, you know, something mm-hmm. that, that shuttle was constantly worried about.
0: I wonder if maybe it also, I don't know enough about the differences of Dream Chaser and shuttle's airframe, but maybe, or the materials that went into constructing it, but maybe there's less thermal expansion, because I feel like that with shuttle, that was also part of it, maybe. It does change its size ever so slightly and so, you know, the tiles need to be able to flex, but maybe not as much in this case, you can have a larger tile that's not going to break, no, perhaps. No, I,
1: I think, I think that that's a really good instinct. Um, so on shuttle, the real the real thermal expansion that you had to worry about was the tiles themselves. If they didn't have enough of a gap between them on the way up, during reentry, when they expanded, they would press into each other and shatter. Um, and so mm-hmm. the larger the tile, the more the thermal expansion. Conversely, the smaller the vehicle, the less thermal expansion from the vehicle's frame itself. Right. I don't think that shuttle, uh, the the actual structure of it, change temperature that much I don't think it really uh, lengthened and shortened I think it was just on the surface those tiles were expanding and contracting so e- even if it did um, the smaller frame of gene chaser we would expect to expand and contract at the same rate but there would be a smaller difference from tip to tail right um, yeah so so yeah I mean I, I think it's a really interesting thought you know you kind of have one thing getting bigger and the other thing getting smaller uh, but I, I think the the effects are just going to be overwhelmed by the amount of expansion in the tiles, uh, overwhelming the thermal expansion of, of the vehicle itself.
0: And these are largely the same kind of heat tiles.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're basically the exact same tile. Um, I haven't looked too much into the, to the chemistry of the manufacturing, but um I'm given to understand <laughs> that they're basically the same the same type of tile.
2: So I don't know, I'm not very good at aerodynamics, right? I, I, I like the space part more than the aero part of aerospace. Right. But um <laughs> yeah. could it also have anything to do with maybe Dream Chaser having having maybe like a simpler shape to it or something like that. So there's Less unique tiles necessary and thus more. I don't know.
1: I mean, you would, you would expect fewer unique shapes anyway. If it had a, a similar amount of, of geometry complication as shuttle, which it doesn't, uh, then, you know, just because it's a smaller surface area to cover, you'd have, you know, fewer tessellation problems to solve. I would imagine. I mean, it really comes down to, a topography question, which is like way out of my wheelhouse. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. I'm actually like zero percent sure. I, I don't even know what my instinct <laughs> is if, now that I think about it.
2: That's the thing. i it's, it's such a, a thing that I don't, I, I know so little about it. Yeah. I can only guess just that. Yeah. Shuttle had a very, very specific mold line. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, dream chasers is very specific too, but maybe you can get away with more like it doesn't have to be quite as, you know, bespoke since it's a smaller vehicle. And so maybe that makes plowing through the atmosphere easier.
1: Well, and who knows? Maybe, maybe they decided to tweak the shape of Dream Chaser. In a way that satisfied the tile problem and the aerodynamics problem. Mm. I, I kind of suspect that that's not the case because, like, aerodynamics are way more important than how many different tile yeah. shapes you have. But
0: I am reading, according to a NASA spaceflight article from a couple years ago, the tiles are stronger and lighter and cheaper, but yeah, stronger and lighter. So I guess there are some differences in properties.
1: Well, I mean, they're, they're still uh, silica based tiles, which the, the HSRI tiles on, on shuttle were also were also silica. Um, Shuttle was, in particular, LI-900. And I don't know what Dream Chasers are made out of. But I do know that um, Dream Chaser's nose is actually different. So Shuttle had a carbon-carbon nose cap. And uh, Dream Chaser actually has a ceramic nose cap, which is pretty cool. It's called uh, the Tufrok or or the the material is called TUFROC, T U F R O C, which stands for toughened unipiece fibrous reusable oxidation resistant ceramic. And that's um that's on the nose and on the leading edges of the wings, um which is quite an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of cool that they can use uh ceramic all over instead of using carbon carbon.
2: <laughs> I like uh Colin might maybe it is supposed to be said, uh, tough rock. <laughs> uh-uh,
1: no, I'm going to go with two, two frock. <laughs> um, so the cargo capacity of dream chaser is, is pretty darn good. So remember there's the vehicle itself. And then also shooting star, uh, it's like cargo module that gets, uh, discarded, um, and doesn't make it through the atmosphere. So the vehicle itself, uh, can carry 5,500 kilograms. That's, uh, just over 12,000 pounds. Shooting star can carry forty five hundred kilograms that's almost ten thousand pounds so the the total carry capacity five plus f- is exactly ten thousand kilograms ten thousand kilograms is is quite a bit <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. and on this first mission uh they are not loading the thing up uh to the brim they're only carrying three thousand five hundred and thirty eight kilograms so that's Uh, about a third of its maximum capacity.
2: So three and a half metric tons, but it has almost 10 metric tons worth of capacity, which is a lot. (laughs) I didn't realize (laughs) that uh, a seemingly small, I mean, smallish vehicle could really carry that much. Wow.
1: To be fair, like shooting star is not all pressurized. Uh, I believe it's got a uh, CBM, a, a, a tube down the middle of it that's narrower than a CBM, the common birthing mechanism, like that hatch, assuming it's, it's a little narrower than that. And then I think the rest of it is all unpressurized um, that, you know, you can access from the outside using Canadarm, but yeah, I, I think the, they basically have a tube that they can just pack full of, of boxes. I don't know if they have actual racks in there. I think the racks are probably going to be inside the the pressurized, uh, the pressurized vehicle. Hmm.
2: That's going to be wonderful to see. Eli.
1: Yeah, I know. Right. I can't wait to see inside this thing. Yeah. And like, we could, we could probably go find photos of the inside of it before the launch. And I, I don't want to see them. I want to see astronauts floating in and out. That's what I want to That's how I want to be introduced to any vehicle that goes to ISS. So uh, a few notes on dream chaser as like an architecture, I think Because it's smaller, uh, and because that means that it has, well, I guess it comes down to its ballistic coefficient. Either way, uh, Shuttle pulled three Gs on reentry. That that was its maximum uh, deceleration. Uh, Dream Chaser will only max out at 1.5, so it'll be a little nicer to come home in. Also, uh, Sierra Nevada has talked about wanting to fly, well, not just fly, to operate the vehicle out of Japan. So launching and landing uh in Japan. Um and whether or not uh they wind up doing that uh Vandenberg is also an alternate landing site. Interesting that it's Vandenberg and not uh, Edwards. Um but you know if if there's a possibility of launching this thing out of Vandenberg on you know a polar on a polar orbit or a sun synchronous orbit that would be a better place to land it than uh than Edwards. But Edwards has already got so much architecture from shuttle, you know, you've got a, a gigantic uh, landing strip that you can basically land anything on. Um, and then who knows, like maybe they could even, uh, <laughs> make some use of the mate Mate device, uh, to put the shuttle on top of its, uh, on top of its Boeing carry vehicle. But in reality, I think uh dream chaser is much more likely to get stuffed inside of, uh, of an airplane because it fits inside of a, a five meter fairing. Right. Yeah. So, uh, 5.4, I think it's five point four. I think you could you could definitely fit a uh, dream chaser inside of a uh, like a super guppy. Mm. I don't know if you could fit it inside of one of the smaller uh, cargo vehicles, like a what's the galaxy? That's not DC ten, right? Oh, so oh oh, Mike says galaxy is C five. Uh, a C one thirty is. Uh, Hercules. I- I'm used to c 130s flying in and out of Edwards. When I was growing up, it was just like, mm-hmm. they were all over the place.
0: So I was going to ask actually, before we go too far from the subject, so I can understand, uh, why you might want to, you know, have multiple landing sites for something like this because that that could basically increase your downmass capability right but i don't understand why they would necessarily want to launch from japan like is there a particular reason for that
1: i think it's they will launch out of japan if japan is willing to pay them and it sounds like they've been in talks with jaxa and jax has been expressing some interest in flying it mm-hmm. um presumably out of Tanegashima. which i mean it, it's it's not a benefit for sierra nevada any more than flying out of anywhere is a benefit for a series of right. data. Really it's where where are the customers, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sense. So Jaxa is interested. That's interesting.
1: I don't know how interested. But I mean I think I think if somebody brought a novel vehicle to you and said, hey Why don't we we think about flying this? I think the answer is always, yeah, sure, let's talk about it. (laughs) You're not going to just dismiss out of hand.
0: Well, because now I'm thinking, why haven't more launch providers done that? Like, I wonder what the big advantage is for Dream Chaser. Why Dream Chaser? Did they approach JAXA for some particular reason? I don't know.
2: I know one reason why there aren't more. There's at least not one other company flying out of Japan, and that's because Virgin Orbit I remember that being in the news that they were going to yeah. try to fly there, and of course they are now bankrupt and, and toast.
1: H two a is four meters. I don't know. I don't know how big of a fairing you actually need for a Dream Chaser. If they were going to fly out of uh, out of Japan, they would be going on a Japanese rocket. I can only assume. I, I can't imagine ULA wanting to ship a Vulcan out there and build a pad and everything. So. Oh no, uh, Dennis in the chat, other Dennis, uh, has now cited an article on, uh, the Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine's website, uh, saying that it is pronounced tough rock. Darn it. I like, I like tooth rock better, but <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see if, if I uh, can manage to bend my brain in the future. And, uh, Dennis also has a nice, uh, little, uh, factoid here. Uh, tough rock was developed. Uh, at NASA Ames, by a group led by David Stewart, who has also worked on the TPS systems. uh, Oh, has worked on TPS systems since Shuttle. So I'm assuming that means worked on Shuttle's TPS. Yeah, so unfortunately, like we don't know exactly when when Dream Chaser is going to fly. I believe it has completed uh, vibration table testing, and I think it's either headed to or already in uh, thermal vacuum testing. I didn't see very good dates. I'm kind of just... Uh, going off of the, the tenses <laughs> that people are using and trying to judge, uh, how far forward in the future they're talking about. But yeah, it's, it's getting ready to go, uh, get mated to, uh, its launch vehicle at, at some point coming up here. Um, kind of cool. You, they, they load most of the cargo through. Uh, the aft hatch, right? Like, especially, especially the cargo that's going to be in shooting star, you, you want to load it from the hatch that you're going to take it out of. Um, but the vehicle also has a dorsal hatch that you can open up and, uh, get ac- you know, late access to the cargo, uh, through the top of the vehicle. So, you know, presumably that's when they, that, that's where they'll be loading the ice cream in. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming they've got coolers, uh, going up this time and, you know, they, they like to put, ice cream in those coolers. But there you go. That's that's the tiny little tiny little taste of Dream Chaser.
0: Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Ben, what is the first? All right, first up, Viasat 3 pushes forward.
1: Although Viasat 3 was unable to fully deploy its antenna, it has been slated to begin service by the end of June. With a 90% reduction to its one terabit per second capacity, the satellite will nevertheless be used to provide Wi-Fi for in-flight commercial planes. Due to the loss in revenue caused by the satellite's reduced capacity, Viasat has filed a $421 million U.S. dollar insurance claim and will be replacing Viasat 3 with another satellite that was originally slated for coverage over other
0: latitudes. And then next up, lessons from Artemis 1. NASA is taking inventory of what can be learned from its Artemis 1 mission in 2022. Both technical and programmatic issues will be assessed in hopes of improving Artemis 2. Some large problems encountered during Artemis 1 were vehicle access once on the pad, the Orion heat shield and radiation effects on electronics and deep space operations another area of concern is organizational silence to this end nasa is making an effort to encourage speaking up about any potential problems so they can be addressed before artemis 2
2: and finally x-37b's orbit speculation while the U.S. government has not released official information on the latest X 37B mission's orbit, amateur sky watchers believe they've identified the space plane through ground based observations. Tomi Samola found an unidentified source with his SAT cam, which continuously monitors the sky for new objects. Observations suggest that Orbital Test Vehicle 7, or OTV 7, is in a highly elliptical orbit ranging from 201 to 24,133 miles, with an inclination of 59.1 degrees. This is consistent with amateur estimates based on the trajectory and drop zones of the Falcon 9 Heavy used to launch OTV-7.
0: Moving right along to this week in Space Light History, uh, we have four winners. We have Cy Kyle, Chris S., the Greek, and Uncle Willie, and they all get bonus points, so good job. The clue was first failure, which uh, I didn't know what that was about, uh, but Dennis, I guess you're about to tell us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what is first failure?
2: Yeah, the, so the first failure uh, was in the, was on the 15th of February, 1996. And it was the failed launch of Intelsat 708. And so this is one that uh, I'm sure a lot of you listening probably recognize, uh, you know, late 90s. It was a failure. And Intelsat, SAT, uh, this is, in fact, uh, the kind of controversial one. And so to give a little bit of background, there were uh, a couple of launch licenses granted to American companies to launch their satellites on China. And this being the 90s, this was all, you know, about putting those big geostationary satellites uh, onto orbit. And so, in particular, uh, uh, Space Systems Laurel, SSL, and uh, Hughes had both gotten licenses to launch from China. And uh, part of this also was that there was kind of just a scramble since, uh, you know, this was after uh, uh, Challenger in 86. And so, at that point, the shuttle right was no longer going to... Uh, launch uh, commercial satellites. And so uh, these companies were looking for other options. And so while some of them were looking uh, to uh, European launch vehicles, uh, China was offering much uh, cheaper launch. And so uh, Hughes's launch launch um, that took place almost uh, exactly one year, uh, 13 months, actually, before this event, uh, January 1995. Uh, they had their AppStar 2 uh, communications satellite, a you know, big classic kind of geostationary satellite. And uh, it was launched out of Xichang Launch Center on a Long March 2E, and it failed mm-hmm. uh, less than a minute into its orbit. And crashed and actually killed six people is the, the, the official number for that. And so it's kind of worth keeping that in mind because when you read about this uh, Intel SAT 708, uh, this week's TWISIF in 1996, it's easy to conflate the two because there was a loss of life in 1996 as well with this Intel SAT launch. Uh, but it's kind of disputed as to just how many people uh, died. And so that was Hughes's, uh, you know, failure in 1995. And again, that was on a Long March or Changzhen, uh 2E rocket, while Space Systems Laurel negotiated for uh, launching their Intelsat 708 on a Long March 3B. And so uh, specifically, this was uh, going to be for $56 million, which is about half as much as uh, what they would have had to pay if they wanted to go on a, a European provider. And so the launch itself was an evening launch. It was at 3 a.m. local time. And the Long March 3B, uh, uses, uh, UDMH and NTO as its propellants. Unsymmetric dimethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. In other words, a very, very rough, very dangerous, uh, hypergolic propellants that give you those scary, uh, big flaming red clouds. And so, but this was also the maiden flight of the Long March 3B. Which is, you know, it's flown uh, many, many, many times. I mean, it's it's still an active rocket to this day. But its very first flight was this kind of uh, infamous one as well. And so that's where the, the clue comes in. I didn't want to come up with a cute clue given that people died during this. And so that's why I just went with first failure.
0: Yeah, and... I'm really surprised to see that this other failure happened in 1995 in almost the exact same way. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I didn't know about either of these, to be honest with you. Yeah. And it says, at least according to you, know, – I'm just doing a quick view of the Wikipedia articles. It says, in both cases, it veered off course and struck a nearby village and killed at least six people. I don't know why they both say at least six. Like, is that – like? Are the Chinese authorities not willing to admit to more than six or something? Like, is that like an upper limit or something? I don't know. It's just very strange to me.
2: Yeah. So, so the AppStar 2, I, I don't know how controversial that number is, but the reason why you read that a, a, at least six people is that for this Intel SAT, the estimates uh, range from the official one that was given by, uh, that was reported in the Chinese press of uh, six dead. Uh, but then, uh, other people have estimates that go into the dozens to even hundreds. And so it's a orders of magnitude difference depending on who you believe. And so I'll try mm-hmm. to present this kind of neutrally because it, I mean, really, that's ultimately what it comes down to is who's reporting and who, what, what story do you find more believable, uh, between the two? And so that's why, yeah, you would get, uh, at least six people, uh, had died in both of these events. And so to not jump ahead too much, I mean, just consider this kind of fallout that you've got. Okay, well, we're going to start putting our, you know, very, very expensive geostationary satellites, we're going to launch them on these Chinese rockets. And then within 13 months, you had two horrible catastrophes of rockets basically exploding in the ground with very toxic and dangerous propellants. So yeah, so let's, uh, let's get into uh, exactly how off-nominal this maiden flight went. I already mentioned that, uh, AppStar 2 launched from Xichang Satellite Launch Center. So did Intelsat 708. Uh, that is the, uh, the inland spaceport where, uh, you know, they, they launch east over land. And so even to this day, there are still, you know, issues with boosters landing and they do launch rockets with hypergolic propellants from this spaceport. And so that's still an issue to this day, but uh, I kind of got a little more context for this place that i never, I guess, really fully appreciated. So it's, it's basically right at the, uh, the edge of the Tibetan plateau. Uh, so we're, we're talking about Southwest China, if you kind of zoom out uh, big picture and, um, and it's really, you know, it's just nestled uh, among the mountains. And so there's just a lot of these, uh, intersecting valleys. And so the launch pad is at the, you know, the base of this valley. So even on a no- nominal mission, it has to clear, you know, a few thousand, not just the the, pa- uh, the tower, but it has to clear, you know, several thousand feet uh, for the nearby peaks in order to go and launch uh, east in the direction it wants to go. Uh, the general arrangement of, the, of Shichang is that uh, at the northwest end, that's where you have the launch pad and, you know, some other, you know, ground support facilities. And then that kind of main valley, I'll call it, runs from uh, the northwest to the southeast. Okay. So, you know, a diagonal in that direction relative to the cardinal directions and uh, way down southeast pretty far from the pad in a safeish place is where mission control is. And then in between them uh, is a residential area. Okay. All in that same valley. And then, From that residential area branching to the southwest is where uh, payload processing takes place. And so that's where a lot of people that uh, there's a lot of footage of uh, the launch. And a lot of that took place from people that were near this payload processing area because they wanted to get away from the residential area that was too close to the uh, flight path of the rocket, which was essentially almost due east. It was a few degrees south of east, uh, seven and a half to be specific, but it mostly was supposed to go east. And so if you've got, you know, this residential area to the southeast, that's a little too close. So you would kind of go out to the southwest towards the payload processing, and you kind of had a mountain in between you and the pad to kind of protect you a little more. And thank goodness they did do that. But in any event, um, in that residential area is, if you're wondering why there's a residential area right there, um, I mean, especially with, uh, now you've got these, this, these major companies, SSL and Hughes that are launching their rockets. They have to bring their technicians and their technicians have to spend a lot of time, uh, preparing the satellites for, for launch and everything and processing, uh, the payloads. Intelsat, uh, for example, renovated an entire small hotel for its American employees, uh, in that residential area. And so that was kind of, you know, that there was a little museum there, um, you know a little space museum, and so there's there's all sorts of stuff that's that that exists in this residential area now it should be you know uh, evacuated before a launch, and especially after one year earlier app two basically crashed and uh, or failed to launch and people died well i'll I'll get to the story of what happened uh according to the perspective of both uh Chinese witnesses as well as some of the American witnesses but um one thing is sure uh when you look at the footage of the launch itself. You've got your rocket. Like I said, it's middle of the night. You see that big red cloud appear underneath it when it launches, you know, the first stage. And it just about clears the tower and just then tips over aggressively. Like this is like Kerbal worst case scenario looking like it's 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 wild to watch this footage. And instead of heading uh, uh, only, you know, 7.5 degrees, you know, 7.5 degrees south of, of due east, Instead, it was going more like 40 degrees. So basically, kind of along this valley. And so it was heading towards the residential area. It was a little east of the residential area. And eventually, it, it, it then, you know, after about 20 seconds of flight, it pitches down enough, you know, it's lost control that you're ready to start seeing like the breakup that you typically see if, if you know, like that proton that wound up upside down, you know, they start to break apart because they're not designed to power slide like that. Only Astro's rockets can. But once <laughs> it starts to break up, it immediately, you know, it, it then impacts the side of a hill and there's just a massive fireball. And then watching the footage seconds after that fireball, then you hear the actual boom. Because that shockwave is what really does the damage. And uh, yeah, if if you look at, uh, again, there's a lot of footage of this, but you can see just, it it was the shockwave that destroyed thing. And that's that's where I kind of like, I guess always had this idea of like, it's not so much that it it burned buildings and things like that because of how you know the fireball that was the danger it was more the shock wave was like flattening buildings throwing windows shards of glass into people that were inside i mean the the one thing that you know everyone can agree on is that there was destruction um and there's a lot of footage of this destruction images of the destruction but whether or not it was as evacuated as it was supposed to be that's where the contention happens uh, as to whether or not there were six, because there's there's nearby villages um, even beyond this residential area, but whether or not the uh, they were evacuated appropriately uh, and you only had six casualties, which is obviously terrible. Half a dozen people reported dead uh, and, and the official estimates also 57 injured, which is not good either, versus some people think that it wasn't evacuated properly and you had potentially hundreds of people that were killed. I guess before going on, just to say what caused the rocket to do this uh, was that essentially the the uh, inertial uh, platform was just entirely wrong. So the rocket did not know, I guess, up from down, uh, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and after a few months of investigation, essentially there was a poor uh, a bond between some of the connectors inside a a power output module. That ultimately, you know, kind of cut it off from being able to power part of the inertial platform. And so the platform just totally. Failed and the rocket wound up wanting to go sideways, and you can see a lot of TVC happening while um, it's it's on its sideways. The, the, the engines are vectoring to try to and gimbling to try to I don't know correct its motion and save it.
0: Well, wouldn't they be what's causing it to veer off course in the first place? Well, I guess Isn't yeah. Right? Like
2: I mean, it, yeah. If if it didn't know if it's inert, when they say its inertial platform was messed up, I'm interpreting that as yeah, not knowing up from down essentially, and thus purposefully going horizontal. Right away,
0: it barely does clear the tower. Like oh. it, it just kind of like almost does, like in a um kind of like in a pole vault fashion. It kind of like dips over the tower and then just starts to immediately come. That's not... a
2: good description. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so these don't have obviously any flight termination systems on board, right? Oh, <laughs> I'll, actually, isn't...
2: I'll talk about that. So the, the FTS did not fire for this, but that doesn't mean that there aren't. That I mean, there actually is an FTS on it, and so yeah. What's the deal with the FTS? Why wasn't that? Um, triggered, and so it turns out that on the on the 3b, the long march 3b i'm not sure if this is still the case, but uh it had a a fifteen second uh, delay for the onboard flight termination system, and for the uh, I guess the you know the people in the room you know pressing the button uh, and triggering it uh, remotely there from themselves, that was actually disabled for the first fifteen seconds of launch. And the idea uh, that I read is that essentially, if you're that close to the ground, triggering the, you know, it might not be enough to really, you know, help anything, right? All you're going to end up doing is causing a uh, an explosion somewhere else um, near the ground. And so um, I'm not quite so sure I, I buy that, but that's that was yeah. at least the reason why it was designed in this particular way.
0: I mean, I don't quite buy that either, to be oh. honest with you. It seems, I mean, maybe I'm... It, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being too uh, cynical here, but it seems like they would do it just because they don't want it blowing up on the pad. They would rather do it somewhere else. You know what I mean?
2: That is a cynical way to uh, interpret it, <laughs> and I don't want to say that that's necessarily wrong because I, I, you know, I, we don't know the actual design choices that were made, but mm-hmm. that's certainly if if you did want to preserve the pad more than, you know, hillsides around you, that is something that you could do to make sure that your pad mm-hmm. is more likely to be saved in a off nominal launch. And so here's where things uh, I, I, you know, I hope I, I hope I do this well. Cause usually I don't have to cover controversial subjects on this show. <laughs> so like I said, there, there is footage and, and kind of, no matter what you can't really argue that there wasn't like a lot of destruction. And like I said, the, you could almost think of it as um, this residential area then had like a railroad track. And then on the other side of the street is where that hillside exploded. And so again, the fireball, wasn't like it didn't look like it. it scorched the whole residential area but the blast wave clearly went through there the people that did the filming and like they, they had talked about you don't see any of the cameras go flying in the air but people did talk about how they were like literally getting knocked back or lifted off the ground from the blast wave so i guess that's you know being a couple uh miles away maybe that was maybe not enough to literally heave them in the air but it was still i mean it was it was destructive it was kind of plowed right through the whole residential area it looked like um the reason why there's this sort of uh, controversy is that uh, like i said the official uh, reporting from china was that there were six dead and 57 injured and uh you know years later in a 2003 uh documentary that was you know um a chinese documentary they were talking about the space program of uh, chinese space program and it included uh essentially uh, an episode it was more like a docuseries i guess and uh and in that episode they you know interviewed people and a lot of the people said things that were you know consistent with that report that they maybe knew one or two, pe- two one or two of the people who had died or that uh, they you know they didn't see any bodies they did just see a lot of destruction and that you know some of these deaths were caused by just being you know indoors and having the shockwaves send you know glass and debris that basically killed people that's the official number, and that's how you get that official number. The way you get the unofficial number is that – this is interesting. Anatoly Zak uh, of Russian Space Web has an article in the Smithsonian where he interviewed two people, two engineers, uh, and this article is from 2013. And uh, one of the two people uh, – one of them spoke on anonymity. The other one is uh, – actually, it was named Bruce Campbell. Um, it's not that Bruce Campbell. It's a different Bruce Campbell, and um, <laughs> yeah, and and he was. Uh, I think he worked for. Uh, I mean, Space Systems Laurel, or if not uh, a subcontractor for them. Right, there's going to be employees from other companies that participate in getting a very complicated, very expensive satellite processed. But one way or another, I, I, if I remember correctly, uh, Anatoly Zak wanted to talk to Bruce Campbell about something else. He was. He, he was. Uh, Zach was researching his. Uh, his book that he ultimately published on um, the history of Russian spaceflight, and that's what he was talking about initially. But then uh, Bruce Campbell starts telling them this story about what it was like being there during the Intelsat Seven Hundred Eight explosion, and that kind of turned into this article. And so, from from this point of view of, of these two engineers, they were told the night before to go to that uh, uh, payload processing building that's kind of off to the southwest, and so kind of around the corner from where the uh, the launch pad is, so you don't have a clear view of the pad itself. And and what they said, along with uh, uh, people uh, interviewed in that Chinese documentary, is that there was a, a an, un- an unexplained hold at uh, T minus fi- uh, two minutes and fifty one seconds, uh, a nine minute hold, and then at T minus one minutes there was a forty five second hold. And there's some speculation about trying to make it, you know, T minus zero at a lucky number, like like or that it was at three a.m. and that was a lucky number. But that's just. Um, I'm not sure how, uh, whether or not that's, that's just uh, what one person said. I'm not, enti- you know, I don't know about the veracity of that. So it's it's not necessarily clear exactly why these holds were. So maybe, I don't know if anybody knew something was wrong with the vehicle or last minute adjustments. Uh, that's just pure speculation. But ultimately, you know, they then, you know, witnessed this happen and they, uh, the descriptions, it's really a good read and the, um, the descriptions uh, of just what was going on are pretty wild, and uh, yeah. So they once they knew how dangerous things were, uh, not just because of the uh, the blast wave and you know the, the explosion, but because of the hypergolic propellants and how dangerous that the FRC uh, cloud can be. They were on the roof watching this initially, uh, the engineers, and they then kind of fled inside. To what they said is the fueling facility. And I've also seen reports that the fueling facility is at the pad itself or right near the pad itself. So it must be something, maybe the fueling facility for the payloads to, to load the payloads propulsion system or something. But one way or another, they're in the southwestern spur. They go inside their building uh, and they, you know, try to, you know, essentially secure it. Uh, putting on, you know, their their masks and try to, you know, put on PPE so that if the cloud comes, you know, floating over in that direction, that they'll, you know, still be okay. Uh, mercifully, it didn't. The wind, if anything, was blowing further east away from the uh, uh, residential areas and out into just the woods. But yeah, a- afterwards, the next morning, uh, according to these uh, people, Anatoly Zak interviewed, they kind of snuck back to the residential area, uh, they saw all the the damage and destruction, and they assumed that because nobody said that they actually saw bodies, um, right? Because if you're saying, how can you, you know, re- uh, six reported dead versus hundreds reported dead? How can there be hundreds reported dead? Well, from this interview's point of view, uh, they think that there were still a lot of people that didn't evacuate the residential area because they saw a lot of them hanging out the night before. And they weren't evacuated then. And so they inferred that they were still around. And that they also thought that the, uh, the, right, there's a military base. So the Chinese military had wanted to keep them from actually, you know, going back into the residential area. And the reason why was so that they could remove the bodies. And, you know, these engineers claimed that they saw trucks filled with bodies that were covered. But I mean, I don't know, it could have been covered with anything, like, or I mean, you could have, you know, just had boxes of, you know, some kind of supplies or something that were covered, and 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 you don't, nobody saw bodies directly, one way or another, and so that's kind of where you've got the, you know, the official and the unofficial reports and uh, them being at such odds with each other, and so you can read uh, essentially uh, an article on uh, uh, the Space Review that kind of bolsters the case for their uh, for the official. Death toll. And then you can also read Anthony Zach's um, article, which uh, makes the case for an uh, a, a unspecified but higher death toll. Um, but one way or another, I mean, any loss of life during a rocket is, is, is terrible, especially, you know, and then do- dozens of people injured. You know, injuries aren't good either. In any event, uh, you could just imagine politically what this was like, right? I kind of alluded to earlier that you just had these two American companies. Put these very big, fancy, elaborate, expensive satellites on two launch vehicles that from the same spot, uh, basically had both crashed and people died in both cases. Um, there was a congressional committee convened and they came up with, uh, what, what's called the Cox Report, COX. And, uh, essentially it's mostly about uh, uh uh asserting that uh, uh that the chinese uh authorities use this as an opportunity to steal nuclear tech secrets, and so basically more stuff including all of this everything involved with these two you know commercial launches uh were put under itar and thus restricted from kind of sharing the information with uh with with china and Chinese space industry as a result this kind of was that was the end of you know American and chinese cooperation essentially in space. You know, at least at that kind of big level, and yeah, and we see that to this very day.
0: Yeah. So the Cox report says that this was mostly about stealing nuclear tech secrets. Uh, What tech secrets? Like what? I mean, these weren't nuclear powered satellites or anything, right? Like, Mm -hmm. in what way was this about that? I
2: I don't know. Maybe maybe the fact that you know you had people that worked for these companies, and maybe through you know a few degrees of separation that gets more specifically to, uh, uh, um, you know, people or documents that are directly tied to nuclear warheads. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's, it's, you know, you're in the aerospace community. So you do your two degrees of Kevin Bacon. And so it's more like maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, maybe it was something as aggressive as, uh, you know, uh, infiltrating a, you know, an SSL server. And then from there being able to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pilfer some secrets I don't know actually that I mean going through the report might would be an interesting thing to do but i I just haven't so I'm not entirely sure I think also this the report wasn't just focused on these two incidents only i, I I'm pretty sure that's true that it was also a larger investigation and so maybe that's where they found um, there were other incidents maybe that were related to it but they still didn't like the fact that given that that was what was happening you still had potentially sensitive uh, satellite technology that was being brought to Xichang and potentially you know stolen as well that could also be used for you know in conjunction with what you stole more directly uh from uh, nuclear projects I guess if you look at the uh the Cox report I'm I'm assuming the Cox report yeah it looks like the Cox report had a lot more going than just these two particular events and talked about um somebody being charged under the Espionage Act um, the next year and uh, some other stuff as well. In any event, that was this week in spaceflight history.
1: Thanks, Dennis. Uh, that that was pretty intense. Um, okay, so next week is the 20th to the 26th of February. David, do you have a clue for us? Uh,
0: I do. Yes, so the clue is for next week in 2008 and it's picked off at the 380,000 yard line. All right. If you have
1: a guess as to what this Super Bowl-themed clue is referencing, email us at info at com or shoot us a tune on Mastodon. Use the hashtag SF. Right now, we only Check Federated Toots on botson.space and spacey.space, but you can always mention at orbital podcast at bots space to make sure that we are federated with you. Or you can also visit the orbitomechanics.com slash Discord for an invite to our Discord server. Type slash TWSF to start the command and hand your guests directly to Tombot. And good luck, everybody.
0: Good luck. All right. So let's do upcoming space events and thank you to Launch Library Two, which is where we start our research each week. Uh, we have seven launches actually, so a lot of launches. Yeah, what's the first one, Ben?
1: Yeah, we'll see how many of these actually, uh, how, how many of them actually go off. So first up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 714. Uh, this and the next SpaceX launch were both delayed, uh, this week, so hopefully they will get off the ground soon. So right now, Starlink is targeting a window that spans midnight. So the window starts on February 13th at 22.17 hours UTC and continues to the next day, Wednesday, February 14th at 0.246 hours UTC. And that is launching out of Vandenberg.
0: After that, on the 14th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching uh Nova C. Uh, I talked about this same one last week, so I guess it's, you know, I got... Uh, bumped back or forward, however you want to put it. Hopefully, it will lift off this time. Uh, The launch time for that is at 0557 UTC, launching from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. Launch coverage of that uh, begins at 1215 a.m. Eastern Time, and the launch is scheduled for 1257 a.m. So, yeah, again, that's on the East Coast, so it'll be, you know, just after midnight. But uh, check that out.
2: And then next, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking the USSF 124 payload to LEO. And this is actually a pair of satellites, one built by uh, L3 Harris and the other by Northrop Grumman. And they are part of that whole big uh, SDA, uh, Space Development Agency, Tranche Zero uh, missile warning system that we're kind of working on now. And so uh, in any event, uh, this has a window on Wednesday, February 14th at 2230 UTC, extending through Thursday, February 15th at 0300 UTC uh, that will be launching at a slick 40 at the key.
1: So next up is an H3 in the 22 configuration, which means it has two uh, solid boosters uh, on the first stage. And it's launching VEP4, CESat1E, and Tiersat. Uh CESat1E and TierSAT are both... Uh, like hitchhikers, ride-alongs, uh, but the main payload is VEP-4, um, which is actually a mass simulator. So it's kind of interesting to have, uh, hitchhikers along with, uh, with a, a, a mass simulator. Um, but this is, uh, sort of the second run at a, uh, at a test flight, uh, the first, Uh, launch back last March uh, at an upper stage failure. So hopefully uh, H3 pulls it off perfectly this time. So all of these payloads are headed to a sun-synchronous orbit on Thursday, February 15th between uh, 0.22 hours UTC and 0.4.06 hours UTC.
0: After that, on the 15th, we have the launch of a Soyuz 2.1A. This is launching a progress resupply mission to the ISS. Uh, This is MS-26 or 87P, and uh, that's launched Launching at 0325 UTC from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan from 31-6, whatever that is. That's its launch pad.
2: And keeping this busy week going, we have ISRO launching a GSLV Mark II. So this is not the Mark three that was then renamed as uh, Launch Vehicle Mark three. This is the, the older one, uh, a few thousand kilograms less payload. But uh, in any event... Uh, this uh, vehicle will be taking INSAT-3DS, which is an Indian weather satellite uh, built and operated by ISRO, and uh, it'll be taking it to uh, GEO uh, on February 17th, Saturday. Uh, with a window from 1130 UTC to 1530 UTC. And as usual, it will be launching at a Satish Dawan Space Center uh, on the second launch pad.
1: And finally, we have an electron launch. Rocket Lab has not confirmed this launch date. Uh, but AstraScale, who's operating the, the spacecraft has said that it's going to be launching on February 18th. So hopefully that will happen. So this mission is called on closer inspection. The vehicle is called address J, uh, or address J, uh, which stands for active debris removal by Astroscale Japan. So they hyphenated Astroscale Japan and hyphenated the acronym. Um, and it's uh, just what it sounds like. It's uh, Testing uh, Debris Removal Technologies. So again, this is going to be launching uh, hopefully sometime on February 18th, but we don't have a time. And with that, those are all of your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Quite a few. So that means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald and Z and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mr. Cesium, Ryan R, Mike, Chris S, Colin, Dennis O, Cy Kyle, Chubby, and Delta V for joining our recording session today and helping us make Correction birds on the Fly.
0: And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links.
2: Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info
0: at theorbitalmechanics.com That's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.